This is the third talk in a four-part series on Paul's letter to the Romans by Terry Virgo and is entitled An Exodus from Slavery. This talk is based on Romans 6, 1 to 18, and has been made available to you through New Frontiers. Good morning once again. It's good to uh, be here with you. We ask this question this morning then in view of the phenomenal grace of God, the extraordinary willingness of God to count us righteous by faith, shall we carry on sinning then? If God's very happy to keep saying we're righteous because we're in Christ, to him who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is regarded as righteousness, so shall we carry on sinning then? W.H. Auden cynically said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. <laughs> but that's not the Bible's uh, perspective. When asking the question, Paul comes back with a very quick answer. And depending which translation, it's may it never be. Or, as it is in the NIV, by no means. As the old King James used to say, God forbid. Or as that wonderful Englishman J.B. Phillips said, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> Shall we carry on sinning that grace may abound? That's the question that's asked. Actually, you very rarely hear Christians literally ask that question. I've been in pastoral ministry for many years, and I don't think I've ever had a Christian just come up to me and say, well, shall we do this then? Shall we carry on sinning then? But obviously, it is a question that arises. And if you like, it's, there's a kind of flip side to it, related to it, a question that maybe you ask. Certainly, I have asked in the past. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me and calling me righteous, but can I actually be freed from sin's power? Is there, is there actually deliverance for me? Can I, can I get out of this area where sin just seems to have its way with me? Is there actual release? Thank you for forgiving me, but can I actually be freed? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his outstanding dealing of the book of Romans, if you've never got hold of that series of books on Romans, uh, by Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I urge you to get them. And chapter 6 is perhaps the cream. It's absolutely magnificent. And jo Dr. Lloyd-Jones said that Romans chapter 6 is the most uh, liberating chapter in the whole Bible. Right? So we're dealing with some very, very important stuff here today. The most liberating chapter in the whole Bible. For here in this chapter, we're going to hear about not only being justified freely as a gift, but being set free from the power and dominion of sin. That's what's going to be handled. And if you like, it's reminiscent somewhat of what happened at the Exodus. And some would argue that the book of Romans is very much reflecting the Exodus story. That the Israelites were, first of all, justified by the shedding of blood. God said that they should take a perfect lamb, we spoke a little of that yesterday in another setting, and take its blood, put it outside the doorposts of their homes, and when God was going to pass through Egypt, judging sin in every home, so there would be a death in every home, he said this, if you put the blood outside the doorposts, gather in inside the homes where the blood is outside, I will look on the blood, I will pass over you. And remember, incidentally, the blood is for God to see, not for you to feel. 
Sometimes people talk about the blood of Jesus in rather strange ways. The blood is always for God to see, whether it's outside the doorposts on that Passover night or in the inner holiest of all on the Day of Atonement where no man was allowed to go. The blood has value in the eyes of God. The blood of the Lamb has more power than we ever understand. We can't comprehend why it's so effective in the eyes of God. We could say much about it. But God says that when I see the blood, I'll pass over. So I'm not trying to feel the merits of the blood. I am thrilled that God is satisfied with it. And if he is satisfied, I find great peace because he is at peace with what he sees. So it wasn't for Israelites fearing as they heard the cries go out through Egypt of people dying. Will that blood cover me? I'll just go and have another look. Wow, I don't know. It doesn't seem to do much for me. No, you just stay inside the house. God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. I will reckon you righteous because I am satisfied with the blood of the Lamb. That's where we derive our peace, that he is satisfied. Praise God. But one can imagine some of those Israelites having been uh, accepted by God, saved if you like, now coming to the edge of uh, the land and being cut off by the Red Sea. And there's, they're not actually free yet. They're still in the land. And actually, they're not only cut off from advance, now, now they can see their former uh, slave owners pursuing them. And one could almost imagine someone saying, oh no, there's my, there's my old master. He's still got me. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. But is there no actual freedom from the slavery that I was in? Now, the Old Testament tells us of a wonderful thing, that the sea opened, and yes, they were actually not just forgiven, but freed from slavery. The Egyptians tried to pursue them, and as you know, not one of them was able to get through that sea. They were wonderfully released. So God wants us to know from this chapter that there is a release for us as believers, not merely forgiveness, not only that our God will accept us, but there was an event that took place in Old Testament history whereby they actually went down into that sea and came up the other side. And now Paul is going to remind us in Romans 6 of an event that took place in history which we were included in, namely the death of Christ, an event that actually set us free from the dominion of sin. And it's a very wonderful chapter that unfolds before us. How shall we, he says, who died to sin? Well, that's how it's translated in NAS. Your IV, NIV says, we died to sin. All right? It isn't talking about a state. It doesn't say we are dead to sin, as though that was the kind of context we live in. It talks about an event, a historical thing that happened. We died to sin. Now, I want to encourage you not only to uh, have entered into the prayer that was prayed at the beginning, but to keep on praying as I talk to you this morning, because there is an element of revelation in this chapter, which once we've seen it, is gloriously releasing for us. So keep saying, Lord, speak to me through this. God says of you, you've had a past experience. We died to sin. Do you not know, is the next thing Paul is going to argue. Now, it's interesting that Paul repeatedly wants to remind us of the good news. Don't forget, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's information, it's something's happened, it's a, it's a proclamation. God has done some remarkable things. 
And the remarkable thing he's done here is not only that his son died on the cross and the apostles explain that that was for our sin, but the apostles also explain something you may have missed. You died with him. You died with him. Now, one or two things we need to underline here. We are not saying there are some special elite Christians who have actually died to the power of sin. Wow. You know, there's like the sinners, then there's us ordinary Christians, then there's a special group who have literally died to the power of sin. Isn't that amazing? Aren't they special? And this morning, I want to encourage you to try and join them. That is not what I'm doing here this morning. It doesn't say there are some special Christians who've died to sin. It says all of us. Right? There's no elite group. All of us. All of us. This is an experience. Not only is it something that's true of all of us, it is something that is historically behind us. And so I'm not urging you to go after this today. I'm not saying this is something you should strive for. I'm not saying this is something you should try uh, to experience. Sometimes people after a preach say to you, oh, that was very challenging. I'm not trying to challenge you to go for something. I'm trying to give you information that you understand. You died to sin. All of us who were baptized into Christ were crucified with him. All of us that are, you are either in Adam, we didn't get into the last section of Romans 5, but Paul has a very clear demarcation, you are either in Adam and therefore a sinner, or you are in Christ and therefore righteous. You are either in the one who condemns us all, or you are in the one who makes us all righteous. And if you are in Christ, what happened to Christ when he died on the cross, you were included in. Now, you may not be able to remember it. You may not be able to remember sinning in the Garden of Eden. You were in Adam, the Bible says. You know, try hard. Let's just all try. Close your eyes. Think, well, can I? Mm-mm. Oh, yes, I remember Eden. Yeah, I feel like, no, I understand. Yeah, I was there. You can't do that. You were in Adam when he sinned, but you've got no recollection of it at all. See, Adam represented the human race. Adam was the human race. We were in him. We were all ruined by his disobedience. We became children of disobedience. We were in him. He was our head, our federal head. What happened to him is to our account. Now, the end of Romans 5 says, now, but if you're in Christ, through one act of righteousness, we're all justified. Now, we're in him, and we're in him when he was crucified. He died to sin once for all, and our old self was crucified with him. Your old self was crucified with Christ. You might say, Terry, uh, you don't know my old self. You should have seen me this morning when I woke up. You should have heard what I said when those people kept talking in the next tent. My old self doesn't feel very crucified. Now, this is where faith is a very important thing. Because God said to Abram, the father of all who believe, Abram, you are Abraham, father of a multitude. Now, Abraham could have said, "Um, God, (laughs) father of a multitude. Uh, It's hard enough living with exalted father, Abram. But Abraham, father, I haven't produced one yet. You say I'm father of a multitude. But it says Abraham believed God. Now, we need to see the difference between justification yesterday, as we looked at, and today progressing into sanctification. Both require faith. Both require faith. And there is a process that takes place. We'll be looking at step by step 
as we go through this chapter. But we need to start by believing God. That God says your old self was crucified with him. He's not saying it's something you're to experience in the future, something you're trying to accomplish, something that's going to happen to you. It says it has happened. It's past tense. Your old self was crucified with him. You might say, I can't believe it, Terry. You just don't know me well enough. Let me just ask you one other question that's perhaps easier. Let's have a show of hands. I won't have a Mexican wave, but how many of you believe that two men were crucified with Christ? Look at that. Quite a few of you believe that, all right? Two men, thank you. Two men were crucified with Christ. Why do you believe it? Why do you believe two men were crucified with Christ? Well, the Bible tells you so. That's the only reason you believe it. Two men were crucified with Christ. You now have the same reason for believing that you, your old self, was crucified with Christ because the Bible tells you so. I know this came home to me vividly as a, a young Christian. I was probably about your age, many of you. I was in my early 20s and I was uh, struggling with a situation in the home fellowship where I was at the local Baptist church, and uh, I was beginning to give my life to Christ and beginning to serve God as much as I could. And I was in the kind of youth group and uh, uh, young people's group and on a committee, and there was another person who kept on getting praised. And I hated it. And for the first time in my life, I realized I was in a terrible grip of jealousy and envy. And whenever I heard that person praised, I, I just... Ugh. And I thought, Lord, I'm supposed to be a Christian, and I hate this. Isn't there any freedom for me? Because it had been around for a while. And I was commuting to London, as was my daily experience, working in, the Lon in London, uh, traveling from Brighton every day, and I was reading my Bible and actually reading this, this bit in Romans 6. And, and I've got this conscious thing in my mind, Lord, I want to get freed from this. And I suddenly read, as it says uh, in verse 7, He who has died is freed from sin. And I suddenly saw it. I thought, hey, yes, I was crucified with Christ. I have died. He that has died isn't envious. You know, you put a corpse next to someone you're praising. You know, oh, he's wonderful. And the corpse doesn't bat an eyelid. He that has died is freed. And I saw it so simply, it just burst on my spirit. And I remember laughing out loud in the carriage. Well, in those days on the Brighton line, you know, no one spoke to one another. You'd sit in the compartment. You'd put your whatever up in the top. You'd open your times and you'd sit there in utter silence for the hour. And I remember when I, I just saw it and I laughed out loud. And I remember all the newspapers came down. <laughs> this funny guy, not only reading the Bible, he laughs at it. You know. <laughs> Didn't know there were too many jokes in there, you know. But I was... I can honestly testify that from that moment, I was free. And I had excellent, I've always had excellent relationship with that person ever since. I suddenly saw, no, I'm free. I'm, I have died. My old self has died. There is emancipation. There is total freedom. I died with him. And so the Bible's telling me that an amazing thing happened to me. Not only did Jesus carry my sin, but somehow I was incorporated with him. I died with him. I was buried with him. I was co-raised. Paul even invents words. He adds this little Greek prefix, sun, with. I was crucified with him, died with him, raised with him, seated with him. I'm co-raised with Christ. I'm a new creation. My old self has died. So was yours. We are 
Amen. Excellent. <laughs> we are utterly delivered. I'm so pleased with that. <laughs> we are. <laughs> I mean, it's the best news. Uh, slavery, if you feel in total bondage to some awful sin that you think, well, every time the temptation, I'm all right until the temptation comes. And then when the temptation comes, I'm just like a ten pin, you know, the ball comes, boom. Oh, here it comes again. Oh, can't help myself. <laughs> and then you just struggle back out. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. But there you are, I'm only an old sinner. Hey, we need to see some revelation this morning that you're not just an old sinner. It's not what this chapter is saying at all. I've died. My old self has died. I'm actually delivered from those old masters. The sea opened. I was baptized with Christ. I was raised with him to newness of life. I've gone through my, if you like, Red Sea experience. Death, resurrection, out the other side, I'm free. I'm free. That's what the Bible says is true of us. We died to sin. It's a, a, it happened in history. When Jesus died on the cross, I died with him. Just as when Adam sinned, I sinned in him. Now when Jesus died... I died with him. That's what Paul is announcing and proclaiming. He says, don't you know it? Don't you know it? It's knowing the truth that sets you free. Jesus said, you will know the truth. You see, sometimes people battle about how, is, how does holiness work? Do we strive harder? Do we let go and just let God stop striving? God will do it. Well, that's not what Paul says. He gives you a step-by-step way through. And the first step is to know something. What happened on the cross affected you. My old self died with him. Then he gives you a second step. It's very specific, step by step. Verse 11. He says in verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, or count yourself. It's a word Paul often borrows from the world of uh, uh, the law courts, like justification. But this word, count or consider or reckon or account, is borrowed from the world of accountancy. And it really means, at root, put in the right column. Put your thinking, line it up correctly. An accountant has to make sure he puts the credits in one account, the debits in another. You mustn't get it wrong. Get it in the right column. That's a good accountant. And now Paul is saying, now, you have died to sin. Now, second thing, consider. Isn't it interesting? This is the first command in the book of Romans. He's gone six chapters telling you good news. That's a good emphasis, isn't it? You who are going to be preachers one day, or just good Christians, it starts with great news. Chapter after chapter of great news of what God has done. The first commandment is, consider it's true. It's a good command to start with. Just reckon on it. Put it in the right column. So what we need to do is reckon what God says is true is true. Because at the moment, when I say to you, your old self has died to sin, many of you may say, whew, I've got problems with that. Now, you first to believe it because God says it's true. You just believe. What God says is true, beloved, is true. You may have all kinds of shadows and question marks, but the fundamental, ultimate reality, as we celebrate as evangelical believers, is that what God says is true is true. My old self was crucified with Christ. I have died with him. The Bible plainly declares it, not only here in Romans, but particularly we're working through here at the moment. But the next phrase is now, you must consider that. Now that's a present continuous. It means you keep on doing it. You keep on. So when you wake up again today, you consider it. You line up again. 
You, you come back to uh, magnetic north. Now, this is the truth. The truth is, I have died with Christ. Because sometimes other voices within, and sometimes experiences you're having, will kind of deny that. And so you are going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by lining up with truth, by accounting it as it really is. God says it is. Now, my responsibility, so stage one is, God says it's true because it happened. Second stage is I need to consider it true. I need to line up with that. I do not need to say I am a miserable sinner every week, every day, because I am not. Right? If you are, get saved. Right? The Bible says we died to sin. And so for every day to say I'm a miserable sinner is not exactly lining up with the Bible. It says, I have died to sin. So I have to line up with what God says. God says that we died to sin. Now, it's important for us to uh, get hold of this. Consider it. Uh, Leon Morris says that it's a favorite Pauline word. Conveys the idea of reckoning or calculating. Douglas Moo says, the object of the imperative is that we should take this death into account, take it seriously, and thus make the gift a gift which, in which we participate. We line up with it. You think the right thoughts. You say, Terry, are you saying that this is just think it? Is this just kind of mind over matter? You think, well, you know, no, I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. Oh, I've done it again. No, no, I'm dead to sin. I think I can think this long enough. If I can think it enough, I can make it true. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying it is true. Therefore, think it. I felt God really spoke to me once. I was flying into Spain, and as we flew into Spain, they said, welcome to, uh, I think it was Barcelona, and uh, where the time is four o'clock. And I looked at my watch, and it said three o'clock. And I I thought, the time is four o'clock. I thought, well, that's a bit silly. It's three o'clock. And uh, I said, what do you do? Do you try and keep these pilots happy or the Spanish happy? Or Okay, it's three o'clock. No, it's four o'clock. No, it's three o'clock on my watch. And mm, still going. It's a good watch, reliable. <laughs> Plainly says it's three. And this guy's fool is telling me it's now welcome. It's now four o'clock. Of course, the reality is this, which I'm sure you're all quite aware, that it's when you get into Spain, <laughs> they're one hour ahead. So when you go to Spain, change your watch. Because in Spain, it is four o'clock. When you are in Christ, change your thinking. Because in Christ, you've died to sin. Line up with truth. Now, quite honestly, the Spain thing isn't too difficult. It's when you've been to, where should we say, St. Louis, Missouri. And it's six hours different. And they're saying, it is now, you know, time to wake up. You said, time to wake up. Or sometimes it's time to go to bed. To go to bed? You know, because <laughs> your body's telling you totally different. But why is international travelers change their watch as quick as possible to line up with the new time, to overcome the jet lag thing? And for us, there is a kind of a jet lag sometimes because sometimes everything in you wants to say, you haven't died to sin. The Bible says you have. Now line up with it quick. Think it quick. Discipline your mind. I am not a sinner. I am a holy one of God. The Bible writes to me as you saints, holy ones, people who have been delivered from sin's power. And so we line up. We consider it to be true because it is true. And that's a daily discipline for us 
to keep on coming back. No, this is what God says is true of me. So it's true because God says it's true. Secondly, I have to consider it or count it or put my thinking in the right column. Thirdly, I have to take responsible action. So in verse 12, verse 11 says consider it. Verse 12 says, therefore, this is your responsibility. This is a three-stage thing. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, this is your actual responsibility. It's the first kind of specific instruction in the epistle of this kind. So often, tragically, Christians are subjected to continual exhortation to either do better or be willing or as though it's all up to us and our responses. The reality of the uniqueness of our faith is we are responding to the great things God has done. And too often people are being exhorted to do things who haven't got enough information yet. What God has already done for us in Christ. But having seen what he has done for us in Christ, we don't just let go and stop striving and would you just lay your hands on my head for a minute? Oh good, I'll do better now. No, I have to be responsible. I have to be responsible. And one of the things I have to be responsible about is to not let sin reign in my mortal body. Sin is looking for somewhere to reign. He kind of personalizes sin. Looking for a sphere of rule. And he's wanting to reign in my mortal body. Why does he insert the word mortal? Is that required? Why, we don't used to talk that way. Why doesn't he just say, don't let sin reign in your body? Maybe he's reminding us that our body is still mortal. Our body will die. This body is not yet saved. Okay, I, I am a new creature, but I live in this body that is waiting for let me just look over a page or two at Romans 8.23. There are many similar uh, verses. Romans 8.23 is just one that's nearby. He says, we groan, halfway through the verse, we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're groaning. We've got this new life in us, very conscious of limitation because we're living in this mortal body. We're longing for that full redemption which will include the redemption of our bodies. God will bring about that where we'll get a new body. We made passing reference to it yesterday. We're going to get a new body. That's in keeping. Meanwhile, I have this treasure in an earthen vessel, in jars of clay, I think the NIV has. So we've got something splendid on the... But, yeah, but it's still in this dying body. These hands that used to touch things they shouldn't touch. These eyes that used to... Gaze at things they shouldn't gaze at. Listen to stuff they shouldn't uh, listen to. These were lips that spoke things that shouldn't have been said. This old body was the vehicle of sin. This mortal body. And Paul is saying, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Sin is looking for an instrument. We're delighted when the musicians move to their instruments because music doesn't happen in a vacuum. There needs to be an instrument. And sin doesn't live in a vacuum. It's looking for an instrument. And the instrument it used to use was your hands, your eyes, your speech, your listening, your capacity to live. And he's, that's what this hand used to do, these eyes used to do. Now I have a new life on the inside, this life in God. Now my responsibility is to live in God and not let sin reign. 
I can take responsibility because I'm a freed agent. I used not to be. I was a slave to sin. And the members of my body were just vehicles of sinning. Now, we're not saying that sin dwells. We're not taking up some Greek philosophy that we have a pure soul and a fallen body. We're saying we are a new creation, but our bodies are not yet saved. And our bodies got used to sinning. And we can go still through those habits and we need to break out of them. We've been blessed so far these few days with lovely dry weather. I've been to many camps. <laughs> Stonely Bible Week we used to run with 25,000 people. One or two people have said to me, uh, what is New Frontiers? Well, that's, we used to do Stonely Bible Week. And many of the songs we've sung here have been written by guys in my home church, In Christ Alone. And there's a new song in my heart and stuff. Yeah, we come from all that. I've been to Bible Weeks. And uh, you can drive through mud. And after a while, when, the, when the, the cars come through and the ruts have been formed, it's quite difficult to get your car not to go through the rut that was there. You've got, you've got the driving, the steering wheel, but it's almost like the ruts take you. <laughs> or if you move house. Have you moved house within the same town? And you come home, come down the motorway, into town. You go, where am I going? No, I've moved to here, haven't I? <laughs> you think, I don't live this side of town anymore. And what, what we, we, we say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And it's important for us to break out of what's just a rut, really, but it's not who I am anymore. I'm a new person. And so the New Testament sanctification is actually quite simple. Let him who stole steal no longer. What? Well, you're a new person. If someone came to you and said, well, I've got a problem with stealing. Stop it. Let him who stole steal no longer. You say, well, I've got a problem with whatever your problem is. Stop it. That's it. Stop it. But I, no, no, stop it. Don't give yourself as instruments to sin. Don't do it anymore. The answer, I can't help it, is not good enough. It's not a biblical answer. God has made you a new creation. Your old nature has died. He says quite plainly, do not go on. Now, I'm not teaching sinless perfection or eradication. He's saying, take responsibility. John says in his epistle, I write these things to you that you may not sin. He that's born of God doesn't. The most modern translations would say habitually sin. In other words, they don't give themselves to that. You stopped it. I'm writing to you that you stop. So the truth sets you free. The gospel really does set us free. It's no good us going out on campus and witnessing about Jesus and say, Jesus sets you free. But actually, we don't tell anybody. We're just as bound as you are. We just get forgiveness quickly. No, we've been freed. We've either got good news or we haven't. The Israelites really were freed. They not only got out, they got into an inheritance and they reigned and there's so much more we could go into in Romans. But it's so important for us that we take responsibility. Verse 14 is not an exhortation, it's a statement. Sin shall not be master over you. It's not an, See, we often, one of our sins <laughs> as evangelicals particularly, I think, is to turn statements into exhortations. Before we have received the weight of the statement, the statement says, 
sin won't be your master. That's a statement. It's a promise. It's a declaration. It's one thing that God has declared. Douglas Moo says in his very helpful commentary, the paragraph that began with the question, shall we carry on sinning in order that grace may increase, ends with the glad tidings that we're under grace, that sin may be overcome. It's overcome. is broken in us. We are slaves to a new master. Verse 17. Thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin. That's what you used to be. You were slaves of sin. That's your former identity. Verse 18 says, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Or NIV has, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Again, it's an announcement. I'm going to see if I can just, can someone just pull that out for me, please? Ah, it's attached there as well. I'm going to do this. If I pull... That'll do. Thank you so much. (laughs) Don't want to be a pain here. Okay, so we were slaves of sin. That's the statement. (laughs) All right. That was my former identity. I was a slave of sin. So sin said, come on, slave. So, okay. You were, you were, all of you, you were slaves of sin. That's your identity. That's who you were. Then it says, but you, having been set free, became slaves of righteousness. So what happened one day is uh, there you are in your slavery. Sin says, come on, slave. Where are we going? Oh, downtown. Well, we're, we're, we're at the marketplace. Okay, I'm at the marketplace. And then righteousness walks in, looks at you and says, hmm, I'll buy you. You say, uh, no, 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 sorry, I'm a slave of sin. So, no, I am paying the price for you. You're no longer slave of sin. I bought you. You're now a slave of righteousness. Come on, slave. (laughs) See, you're in utter bondage to righteousness. Okay. It says this is your identity. I used to be a slave of sin. That's what I used to be. I was. I used to think if only I could stop this stuff. But now, praise God, I'm a slave of righteousness. I'm in total bondage to righteousness. If someone had said to me when I was younger, you know, one day you will go to a, a camp and go in a tent and pay money for it <laughs> and do that year in and year out and say, this is good. You think, come on. <laughs> Why do you do this? Well, actually, the reason you do this, you're in total bondage to righteousness. When I, used to, when I used to be a sinner, I used to sin a lot at the weekends. Weekends were especially for sinning. And then I'd go to work on Monday and I had friends at work and I would boast about what we did. You should have been at that party. The booze, the this, the that. Oh, talk about, but I was just, we thought it was wonderful. The, things we, the more outrageous it was, the more great we thought it was. Now, I'm a slave of righteousness. Now, sometimes I can say something to somebody and I think, well, I hope I put that right. Um, I hope I didn't misinterpret the way I expressed that. You think, what is with you? You're worried about the way you said something. 
What is your problem? This is my problem. I'm a slave of righteousness. And when I do something out of keeping with my new identity, something inside says, oh, I don't know if I did that right. I don't know if I should have done that. You're not being yourself, son. Come on. And so you have to come back quickly and say, maybe to God first. Well, I'm sorry. And then maybe to the person. Is you okay with that? Because this is our new identity. This is who I am. This is who you are. It's important for you and me, dear friends, that when we pray and think about who we are, we are not constantly saying, but of course, my terrible sinfulness. That's what Jesus died about. You've been born again. See, born again is a phrase that's almost been stolen from us. I know it's not in this text, but it's important to overlap it here. John talks about new birth. Paul uses different kind of language. But a new birth, see, the, the sports world has borrowed this phrase. You look at our newspapers, you see, born again, some player who stopped and doing better now. Or some team, oh, born again, they love it. Some boxer who stopped fighting and now he's back, oh, born again. They, they've stolen our word. And what they mean is, he's having another go. But born again doesn't mean that. Born is something that wasn't there before. Friends of mine had their third child at home. They had their first two in hospital, little toddlers. And the third child was expected. And uh, the little toddler's going off to bed. And that's the night it happens. And they had their little third child at home. uh, Born in the night. And in the morning, the toddlers come down and say, Who's he? He wasn't here last night. (laughs) Born. Wasn't there before. I've been born again. I'm a new creation. The old has passed away. I'm not trying to be religious. I'm a new person. It's so important that we understand that. Knowing our identity is hugely, hugely important. Of what God has made us to be. If we say, well... What is your identity? You see, what we can often think of is the prodigal son. The prodigal son is in the far country. He's away. He's eating the pig food. He, he comes home. We all know the story. And the father says, put the cloak around him. And we can sometimes think of uh, the cloak of righteousness. Somehow it's an external thing. It's something God just simply puts around us. And it's almost like, don't get too close to the prodigal, because underneath, pigs, you're still there. Um, But thank God for the covering. We can tend to think that way. So we can tend to think, well, my, my identity underneath, I'm still the same person I used to be. You haven't had this amazing experience of being born again. And so your identity is a hugely important thing. Let's, let's say, well, you can all see this. It's a strange place for it to be, but... I want you to imagine that this uh, speaker is a pig. (laughs) Right? That's his identity. Right? Your identity, speaker, use your imagination, is pig. Right? So pig is very happy, looks back at me, says, you're happy, I'm happy, I'm a pig. Pig is my identity. He's a happy pig. It's fine. That's my identity. I'm a pig. Right? Pig. Pig is your identity. Here pig is your calling in life are you ready yeah tell me your calling in life is fly (laughs) now i've just made him a very unhappy pig because his identity pig and his calling in life fly are so different he's going to be a miserable pig the rest of his life 
Now, many Christians are like that. They think, my identity is sinner. My calling is be holy. Oh, I'm going to be miserable the rest of my life. Unless I understand, now God's done an amazing thing in me. He's made me a new creation. I've died to some, I'm a slave of righteousness. I feel at home in righteousness. I have an appetite, ever-increasing appetite for righteousness. My soul thirsts for God. I love being with him. Things that would have absolutely been abhorrent to me. Being in church, being in a tent with a lot of students. What am I doing here? <laughs> Things to do with God and exalting Jesus and making him known and helping others through. You think, I can't get enough of it. Well, that's not what I used to be. This isn't rules. It's a profound change in the inner man. God has changed us from the inside by his grace. The truth sets us free. It is a statement of fact. It's one of the great things that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones brings out in his commentary in Romans 6, that too often we interpret the statements as exhortations. We say, come on, try and be righteous before we've told people what they are. If you tell people long enough, actually, you're still a miserable sinner, but try harder. You're going to have a miserable church. and I don't want to belong to it. I want to help my people understand who they are in Christ. Jeffrey Grogan, who used to teach dogmatics at London Bible College, says this is the, the center of all theology, our union with Christ. Now, whether he's got the right center or not, you can choose, but it's a very important doctrine. Who I am in Christ. I am free. Therefore, and I close with this, because the truth sets you free. It's no good you saying, I can't help myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape. So for some of us, we say, well, I can't help it. I can't help it. I want to tell you a story. I know some of us are not familiar with the gift of prophesying, but please forgive me if you're not comfortable with it. It's just in the, in the illustration, in as much as for a certain gentleman in America who has a very remarkable gift of prophesying. I happen to be at a meeting, 2,000 people in Kansas City, and uh, this man, for three quarters of an hour, prophesied over people and uh, he didn't know anything about me my family he just suddenly said in the midst of 40 minutes of speaking in these ways he said uh, uh, Terry and Wendy Virgo then he named all my five children everyone perfectly correctly he said your daughter Anna she has a South African in her heart Uh, she's now married to that South African lives in Cape Town he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, to sift you. At that time, my son Simon was in the grip of rebellion and backsliding. He says, you have a rock and roll thing in you. And he was absolutely taken up with that. He said, but you will come back to God, and, which has happened. It was just remarkable. He told me this story. He went to a home to see somebody, and uh, he went to this family. He said, God told me to go to him. And this guy said, I've got this terrible problem. I've committed adultery often. And he said, uh, my wife's very forgiving. And uh, she's a sweet wife and she always forgives me. She's taken me back every time, but it's a thing with me. And, I, and she, he said, God's so 
gracious. God keeps forgiving. So wonderful. God is so forgiving and merciful. And my wife, so that's the way it is with me. I've got this problem. And this guy said to him, uh, actually said, that's why I've come to see you. He said, actually, God sent me to come and see you. He said, oh, great. He said, God's so kind, gracious, knows all about the thing. So difficult, I can't help myself. And he said, but this is, this is what God says to you. I know about this, and if you do it again, you will die. And this guy said, do you know, he never did it again. <laughs> he was immediately healed, immediately set free. He was it's like, that never, ever happened again. Oh, I can't help it. You do it again, you'll die. Oh, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> Hey, listen, there is no temptation. You say, well, I can't help it. It just comes and I yield to it. The Bible says quite plainly, don't, don't yield yourself to things. You say, well, I, I can't help it. Every time I watch late night television and these movies come on and I don't know, I get all stirred up and it messes me up. And I've got some blinding revelation for you. Don't watch late night television. <laughs> Or you might say, the newspaper I get, I get it for the sport, but on page three, and wow, I mean, I just, I can't help myself. And every time, I don't know, it's just another blinding revelation coming now. Are you ready for it? Don't buy that newspaper. See, take responsibility. Don't go there. Stop doing it. Say, well, I can't. Yes, you can help yourself. And the Bible says this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man just quoted it 1 Corinthians 10 13 there isn't one that's too hard for you that's what the Bible plainly states there is no temptation that's too hard for you one day when we stand before God in the in the white light of his pure presence which all of us will do to give account to him one day imagine him saying to you was there any temptation too great now the Bible says there isn't one and he wrote the Bible to put it simply so I don't think any of you, is, and I, we're not going to find the courage to say, well, I think none of us is going to do that. When you meet God face to face, none of us is going to say, well, I reckon. No, no. You're going to say, I agree, I agree, I agree, whatever. <laughs> that is going to happen. One day you will agree with God utterly, unquestioningly. You will agree with God. You will say, I confess there was no temptation too great. I agree. I agree. Why don't you confess it now? Why don't we walk out of this tent and say, I'm going to confess it now. There isn't any temptation too great for me. God's freed me. I'm not going to live with that lie anymore. I don't have to give in to it. I'm a freed person. That's why we've got a message to our fellow students on campus. We've been set free. People in terrible bondage to sin and greater and greater sin. This isn't just about forgiveness and keep on being a slave in the land. We have experienced an exodus. We've come out. We're in Christ. We've been set free. Now, if any man sin, if any man sin, we come back and we say, Lord, I confess. I'm sorry, Lord. I, I know it's out of keeping with who I should be. Please, I confess my sin. I ask you, please forgive me. And then we stand again. We don't say, oh, that, that proves the whole thing of Romans isn't true. I just sinned again. All that Terry Virgo says is irrelevant. I'm still a sinner. No, no, no. We say, Lord, I am sorry. I come to you now. And you don't try, get tricked by Satan to say, you better not come to God yet. You know, if you leave it a few days. You just did it. Don't talk to God now. Stay out in the shadows for a few days. 
you know, a few days it won't seem so bad, and he may have forgotten. And sorry about the other day, Lord. But while you're out in the shadows, Satan starts bombarding you. Don't try and pray, but not draw near to God. No, no, you've got to learn to be disciplined. Say immediately, say, Lord, I am really sorry about that. And get used to that daily discipline of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us. Is there anything, Lord? Is there anything? Forgive me, Lord, as I forgive. But God's called us to a new life. Amen? I want to encourage you, beloved, to get into the grace of God. I'm going to have the cheek and boldness to recommend God's lavish grace. (laughs) A student in Brighton said to me, you should always recommend books. If If lecturers come... They'll give us a talk and then say, but if you want to know the whole thing, you must get the book. And this will, I've had letters from Canada and India recently of groups who said, we've had a group studying this together. It has brought such change. I want to commend it to you. And I've never dropped the price before, but I noticed that student things, you have to drop the price. <laughs> I see all of you going arms and I think, oh, of course, because the price. <laughs> so I've actually gone down from seven ninety nine to five ninety nine. I've never done it before, right? Lord Jesus. (laughs) I don't want to take any of them home, okay? We're just going to pray. Father, we we do thank you for the, the true deliverance you've afforded us in your Son. And Jesus, we thank you. You said if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And I pray for my dear friends here this morning. Lord, you know our secret battles. And you know sometimes we've... We've just not been exposed to knowing this, that we're free. We've settled for it, that, well, I just can't help it. And Father, I ask you, let truth stay with us and do us good. Bless us in our discussion groups, bless us in our personal lives for your glory and for your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes the third of this four-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.